Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, May 21st, 2022, and today we come to you um, looking forward to tomorrow. Tomorrow being uh, the, what Sunday of Easter? It would be the sixth Sunday, Easter 6, because we have Ascension Day, which we'll recognize this coming Wednesday, um, and then uh, it's typically celebrated on Thursday, but we normally have a Wednesday evening service, so we can celebrate Ascension then. And then uh, the following Sunday is Easter 7, Sunday after the Ascension, um, before we get to Pentecost. <clears throat> uh, so, yes, we'll prepare for tomorrow by looking at the Old Testament and Epistle reading, considering uh, especially the Epistle, how it has been either misunderstood or misused, and uh, but also think a little bit about the Old Testament text, um, specifically if you saw that picture uh, from William Blake, who's one of my favorites, uh, just because he's so far out uh, with the serpent on the pole, which Moses fashioned out of copper um, or bronze, I should say. Um, well, what is going on with that picture? But regardless, uh, how we might best understand the idea of images, images. Luther actually preached uh, on the topic. Uh, on a momentous occasion, uh, it's worth us looking at his sermon in regards to the fashioning of images, which includes statues and things like crucifixes, etc. All right? Good. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we say our memory verse one more time. This is Again, from a sermon from St. Peter. Continue in the faith. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22b. Psalm is Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills Sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. This was our intro at Psalm for last week, last week's Sunday. So obviously the theme there last week was cantate, so um, to sing to the Lord, right? which is what we do. Um, I know it's, maybe you think of it as kind of a Lutheran distinctive, um, because <laughs> that was one of the 
elements of the Lutheran Reformation is that congregational singing was restored to the to the Christian church, and other uh, church bodies are only now catching up with that, especially our friends in the Roman church. All right, but it, it actually is, it's, it's not wrong to say it's commanded by God in the Psalms, right? These are God's word, and he says sing, so we sing. He doesn't say sing well, um, although that's a good idea too, to learn how to sing. Um, he doesn't say sing um, only if you feel like it from your heart, no. He says sing, and he, then he gives you the words to sing, which is even better. Here's what uh, Patrick Henry Reardon has to say about this psalm, and I think it's really helpful for us. The latter part of Isaiah, in which the dominant theme is Israel's return from Babylonian captivity, speaks several times of God's arm, a metaphor especially used in conjunction with the noun salvation and the adjective holy. You see Isaiah 40, 40, 51, 52, 53, 59, 63. The robust image of God's arm, which had first appeared in the Bible in the context of the people's deliverance from Egypt, see Exodus 6 and 15, was thus applied to their return from exile in Babylon. In each case, the redemption of the oppressed was ascribed to the holy flexing of God's muscle, as it were, on their behalf. You can see where he's going about. It is significant that the mother of God summoned the same metaphor to describe God's definite historical intervention on behalf of his people. Holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. That's from the Magnificat, Luke 1. God's arm in these contexts is an, is an image of his power according to the spirit of holiness, Romans 1, 4, and the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, verse 16. The same reference to God's holy, salvific arm appears several times in the Psalms, one example being the opening of this psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song, for the Lord has done wondrous things. His right hand and his holy arm have wrought salvation. God's salvation is not simply a thing announced, but a wrought reality. How did we translate that? Worked, right? Yeah. In saving us, God truly does certain deeds, wondrous things, by which we are redeemed. God saves man by the forceful intrusion of his holiness into man's history. God's arm is a metaphor of this interrupting redemptive holiness. In the wondrous things of the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, God's arm invades the process of human destiny with the outpouring of his own life. Man's life is thereby given access to the incorruptible life of God. You see where he's going? I think you do. This, says our psalm, is the substance of the gospel proclaimed to the nations and the peoples of the earth. The Lord has made known his salvation unto the nations as he has revealed his righteousness. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The substance of the gospel, then, is not some theory about God or even some set of norms by which man is to live. I think this all connects really well with what we're going to talk about from our epistle. At root, the gospel has absolutely nothing in common with even the highest religious speculations, such as those of the uh, Upanishads, the Pythagoras, Heraclitus, Lao Tzu, or, or Lao Tzu, is it Lao Tzu? Yeah. And, or the Buddha. In the strictest possible sense, beyond all human reckoning or expectation, the gospel is a new song, a radically different voice on the human scene. It is the revelation of God's holy arm taking charge of man's history. It is that redemptive holy activity by which he has shown strength with his arm. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Such is the meaning of theophany, literally, literally the appearing of God in man's history. 
This appearing of God is not a general or pervasive luminosity to which the human race has a ready and easy access. It is, on the contrary, most particular, very specified with respect to time and place. God has become incarnate only once. Only once has the price of our sins been paid. Only once has he appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has ordained. Moreover, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17.31 Only once has God done all of these wondrous things. Right? Our psalm speaks likewise of this latter judgment of the world by one man whom he has ordained, quote, for he comes to judge the earth, it says. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with uprightness. All of human history will at the last be summoned before the same judge whom God has ordained, giving, quote, assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. This single, unique standard of the final judgment is likewise component of the gospel itself, quote, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 32. And here's the point. Particular in the time and place of its appearance, the gospel of Jesus Christ is nonetheless universal as the canon and measure of man's destiny, being solely the source of the knowledge of salvation. Luke 1, 77. So, um, that sentence in there, in the wondrous things of the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, God's arm invades the process of human destiny with the outpouring of his own life, right? So who is the right arm of God who has been made bare, who has been exposed and revealed to us? That would be Jesus. That's correct. Yes. So hopefully you saw where he was going there. Right? Isn't, that, isn't that beautifully said? Right. And then, of course, uh, this is important. The law is understood and known by many traditions, um, more or less, right? Including Pythagoras, Heraclitus, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu, and Buddha, right? But the gospel can only be known by way of Jesus Christ, right? It is unique revelation. It is not self-evident in creation. All right. Our first reading for tomorrow will be from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take the serpents from us or take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. It's to the theme for tomorrow we'll talk about. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. All right, so uh, the reason why this uh, is the reading for tomorrow is tomorrow we have a theme of um, Christian prayer, right? So this, I like to call it the Sunday of Christian prayer. We Our gospel text is from John 16 again, right? And where Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, right? Ask in my name, ask in my name. He keeps saying that. Um, the Father loves you, so ask in my name. 
because he is the beloved of the Father. So here um, we have this foreshadowed by Moses, right? The people are in need of salvation. They go to Moses, who is their intercessor, just as Jesus is our intercessor before the Father. Moses intercedes before God. All right. Um, And what was the other element that we wanted to talk about? Well, then there's the last element, right? Which is the fiery serpent on a pole. Not living, dead. Right? He, he actually crafts an image. Now, this does come after Sinai. So already on Sinai, you had, you shall not make for yourself any graven images, right? Which belongs under the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Um, our, the Reformed tradition considers it the second commandment. So their commandments are all offset by one. So for example, honor your father and your mother is the fifth commandment for them. Um, remember the Sabbath day is the third commandment. You shall um, not misuse the name of the Lord your God is the third commandment for them. And then you shall not grave in any, make any graven image is the second. And then um, the last two commandments for us, the coveting commandments are combined into one, right? Fair enough. Okay. Graven images, meaning um, idols that are fashioned by hands, by man uh, to be worshiped. Um, I think the traditional approach of uh, the Christian church until the time of the Reformation, uh, and the one that which the Lutherans uh, maintained and retained is the more appropriate because idols don't always need to be fashioned by hand, okay? Idols can be of uh, in the mind. They can be uh, people living. They can be uh, anything that you put your fear, love, and trust in, right? As Luther rightly teaches us in the First Commandment's explanation. So, uh, but at the time of the Reformation, this was a contentious issue. Uh, Luther and the reformers, the Lutheran reformers retained the use of statuary, of the crucifix, of um, painting, of sacred art, um, actually actively used sacred art to catechize, to teach the people the faith. Uh, Whereas those of the more reformed variety, uh, which actually is an offshoot of the Lutheran Reformation, they um, they actually reject that. And many of them, even to this day, you'll see in various... Uh, reform traditions, they, they may not even have a crucifix. They may not even have um, pictures of Jesus, for example, um, even doing any of his saving acts, right? Uh, and one of the figures responsible for that was uh, Andreas von Karlstadt, who Luther had set up to be um, his, well, to be the pastor in Wittenberg um, in his absence when Luther was in hiding in the Wartburg, right? So you might know that. Um but while Luther was away, uh, famously, um, towards the end of, uh, I believe it was 1521, is that right? Thinking that's right. Um, towards the end of that year, yeah, 1521, um, Karlstadt went through and, and just um, started doing great damage uh, to the, not things that, that matter, uh, but things that don't matter. We call that uh, indifferent matters. So, for example, they were breaking stained glass windows, they were throwing out or burning crucifixes, they were um, removing the vestments and destroying them, um, trying to think what other things were addressed, right? And uh, Luther got wind of it. It took a little while. Um, I mean, one of the scandalous things is that on, on Christmas, um, Karlstadt wore plain clothes uh, to officiate the service, right? Caused great offense to the people. Now, those indifferent matters, if they are made not indifferent, uh, so a matter of faith, right? So we must wear vestments, we must have a crucifix, we must have um, images, we must have statues and stained glass windows that have actual depictions of 
people and not just iconography. Um, if those things become, or, or even the use of things like the organ or um, um, of hymnals or what, what not, I mean, if anything is made not indifferent, that is indifferent, that can be um, retained or removed without sin, uh, now it actually has become a matter of, of doctrine that it must be, it must be removed. So Luther um, cautioned um, Karlstadt, and he refused to listen, that uh, it's not appropriate to remove things too quickly, especially things that people are, have, if you'd like, sentimental value, right? Or, or value in, in, in terms of teaching the faith, or can be retained without sin, right? Um, the Lutheran Reformation removed many things that, that uh, they believed could not be retained with, without sin, right? And one of those would be the procession of, of the body of Christ um, in the Corpus Christi Festival. Another was the rite of confirmation. The Lutheran reformers um, saw what confirmation was at, at their time and said that, that it could not be retained and they removed it and it didn't get reintroduced for 200 years. Um, and even then in scattered ways and different and not in any kind of um, specific way because it's the right of man. It can be retained or removed without sin. Um, it's only when people say that we must retain it that uh, now it becomes a matter of... Um, what do we call it in statute confessionalis in Latin, meaning it has to be removed if those if there are those who are demanding it be retained because God does not command it. All right. Um, so same with images, and he talks about this in um, March of 1522. He actually leaves the Wartburg. He comes out of hiding um, as Junker Georg, you know Georg, which was his uh, pseudonym. And he returns to Wittenberg, and for a whole week, beginning on the first Sunday in Lent, all the way through the week, each day, he preached against Karlstadt, and they ran him out of town um, because of the radical reforms he was doing. Unfortunately, Karlstadt ended up in Switzerland and then inspired others um, to continue those radical reforms, and that's what you see in uh, the Calvinistic churches. But here's what Luther has to say in his sermon. Um, this was on... It would have been the third sermon, so it would have been on Tuesday, <laughs> March 11th, 1522. So, very specific. But now we must come to images. Concerning them also, it is true that they are unnecessary, and we are free to have them or not. Although, it would be much better if we did not have them at all. I am not partial to them. A great controversy arose on the subject of images between the Roman emperor and the pope. The emperor held that he had the authority to banish images, while the Pope insisted that they should remain, but both were wrong. Much blood was shed, but the Pope emerged as victor and the Emperor lost. What was it all about? They wished to make a must, quote-unquote, out of what, what is free. God cannot tolerate this. Do you presume to do things differently from the way the Supreme Majesty has decreed? Surely not. Let it alone. You read in the law, Exodus 20, you shall not make yourself for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. There you take your stand. That is your ground. Now, he's talking to the, his opponents there, right? That's what they're saying. You can't have any graven image. All right, this is a pretty aggressive sermon, by the way, in tone. Um, there's a whole book on rhetoric where he actually analyzes these sermons as a kind of an epitome of Luther's preaching rhetoric. All right. Um, now, let us see what happens when our adversaries say, quote, the meaning of the first commandment is that we should worship only one God and not any image, even as it is said immediately following, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. When they say, 
that it is the worship of images which is forbidden and not the making of them, they are shaking our foundation and making it uncertain. And if you reply, the text says you shall not make any images, then they will say, it also says you shall not worship them. In the face of such uncertainty, we would be so bold as to destroy the images? (laughs) Not I, but let us go further. They say, did not Noah, Abraham, and Jacob build altars? And who will deny that? We must admit it. Again, did not Moses erect a bronze serpent, as we read in his fourth book? Numbers 22. Moses forbade the making of images, yet he himself made one? It seems to me that such a serpent is an image too. How shall we answer that? And again, do we not read also that the two cherubim were erected on the mercy seat, the very place where God willed that he should be worshipped? That's the Ark of the Covenant, right? Here, we must admit that they may have images and make images, but we must not worship them. If they are worshipped, they should be put away and destroyed, just as King Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent erected by Moses. Right? And that's in 2 Kings 18. Uh, Nahashan, Nahashatan, I think is what they called the bronze serpent. They even gave it a name. And then it, then Hezekiah destroyed it. And who would will be so bold as to say, when he is challenged to give an answer, they worship images? They will say, are you the man who dares to accuse us of worshiping them? Do not believe that they will acknowledge it. To be sure, it is true, we cannot make them admit it. Just look how they acted when I condemned works without faith. (laughs) They said, do you believe that we have no faith or that our works are performed without faith? At that point, I cannot press them any further, but must put my flute back in my pocket. That's a uh, euphemism for, you know, that that he would change his tune and give up his argument. For if they gain a hair's breadth, they make a hundred miles out of it. Therefore, it should have been preached, so here's the conclusion, that images were nothing, and that no service is done to God by erecting them. Then they would have fallen of themselves. That is what I did. That is what Paul did in Athens when we went into their churches and saw their idols. He did not punch anyone in the mouth, but stood in the marketplace and said, You men of Athens, you are all idolatrous. He preached against their idols, but he overthrew none of none by force. And you want to rush about, create an uproar, smash the altars, cast out the images. Do you really believe you can abolish the images in this way? No, you will only set them up more firmly. Even if you overthrew the images in this place, do you think you have overthrown those in Nuremberg or the rest of the world? Not at all. St. Paul, as we read in the, read in the book of Acts, sat in a ship on whose prow was paint, were painted or carved the twin brothers, that is Castor and Pollux, Roman, Roman characters. He went on board and did not bother about them at all, neither did he break them off. Why must Luke describe the twins at this point? Without doubt, he wanted to show that outward things could do no harm to faith as long as the heart does not attach itself to them or put its trust in them. This is what we must preach and talk about, and let the word alone do the work. As I said before, the word must first capture people's hearts and enlighten them. We will not be the ones who will do it. For this reason, the apostles boasted in their service ministry, and not in its effect, executio. Let that be enough for this day. Right. So that was his sermon, the end of his sermon for Tuesday, March 11th, 1522. All right. Um, from this, you, you probably know a term. It's called iconoclasm. Have you heard of iconoclasm? All right. This, is, this has been a long-standing dispute in the church. Um, in the 8th century, there was an ecumenical council. It's not it's not one that we recognize, or maybe we do. I'm not, I haven't gotten a straight answer. 
Um, Lutherans for sure acknowledge the first four ecumenical councils, um, especially since the fourth is where the uh, Nicene Creed was finalized. Okay, so we do uh, agree with the councils and decrees. Uh, the decrees and of the councils, the first four. The seventh council was in the eighth century, um, and the notable figure of the eighth council, or excuse me, seventh council was John of Damascus, um, who's actually a, a terrific character. Um, is as there's many liturgies that he wrote for the Eastern Church. Um, he wrote an excellent work disputing Mohammedism or Islam, as we call it today. So you can go read that. Uh, we actually did a banned books pod- series of banned books podcast on that work from John of Damascus on Islam. So you can go look at that. Um, but also, he's most notorious, I would say, for his uh, response at the council of uh, that seventh council. And I can't remember where it was. Uh, about icons and the use of icons and kind of created a little bit of a rift between the Western and Eastern church on this topic. Um, specifically, he he created or articulated a category of um, reverence or veneration would be the word we would use. So to have an image or an icon, and you know, in the Eastern church, they have a, a strong tradition of iconography, meaning um, like a specific kind of painting. It depends on whether you're, like, say, in Russia or in another, uh, in a Baltic state. Um, they each have their own kind of unique traditions. Whereas in the West, um, more statues, um, but also visible art. Um, veneration, he would say, is not worship. So, so you can remember um, Jesus or his or the events of his life through these icons or um, any of the saints, Mary and. Um, uh, the apostles, or or even other more obscure people that we recognize throughout time, um, by by looking at their icon, right, um, and using your eyes to draw draw your meditation towards um, the things that they said or did, um, but hopefully towards faith. It's a little bit controversial, I suppose, still, especially for our church. Um, but he was responding to the emperor trying to run to destroy all of the icons. All right, and then the, came down on the side. Um, the Eastern churches came down on the side of no icons can be retained uh, without sin. All right, so that that was in the seventh century. This ke- and this just keeps going. Um, obviously, there can be abuse, but there can also it can also be retained. Um, think about maybe you don't know this, but the small catechism, uh, many editions of the small catechism, even you know right away during the time of Luther, featured woodcuts, so simple black and white drawings that accompanied and and would narrate the various parts of the catechism. If you've got one of the Concordia Lutheran Confessions, this edition, all right, um, you'll note that those woodcuts are actually in the section on the small catechism. Um, and there's other ones throughout the book as well. So I'm just trying to find a small catechism. Here it is in the middle. All right. So for example, I'll just turn off my light, show you the page. All right. So you can see there, I don't know what that is. The third petition of the Lord's Prayer. So you see the petition on this on the one side, but then you see the the woodcut that accompanies it. And for example, that woodcut is Christ doing the will of the Father from Matthew twenty seven. So he's bearing the cross. So thy will be done, and he's bearing the cross. It's really beautiful. Or give us this day our daily bread. The woodcut is the feeding of the five thousand. Right. Those were commissioned by Luther to accompany the Catechism. An image of Christ. Right. Art. Art. So um, we're not opposed to it, and you've noticed that we have a crucifix. We don't have to have one, um, but we can have one without sin as well, right? Um, We have other kinds of images throughout the sanctuary as well, all right? 
Um, why is this important? <laughs> because we're visual learners as much as we're auditory learners, right? Um, especially in a non-literate society, which actually we're becoming increasingly non-literate. <laughs> we can't read. Um, think about how effective um, an image is, a meme with just a few few words, but, but uh, the power of an image, right? Um, I think that's still true, and it's even more true today, probably. People don't read. They can't read long form. They won't even read a, they'll read a headline. They won't read the sentence that follows, the byline, et cetera. All right. They don't, certainly don't read the article. Uh, and then they'll share a repost or they'll, or they'll have comments about it without ever reading what was actually written. Okay. So, um, so images can be very powerful in that kind of context where people don't read or won't read or can't read. So that's one reason. Um, but also Jesus is the image of, of God and he made himself visibly known to us. Right. And so the bronze serpent on the pole, of course, is a, um, foreshadowing of Christ himself upon the pole, which Jesus himself says in the gospel according to St. John. Um, where is that? Is that in John chapter, I don't know, as Moses lifted up the, the serpent on the pole, so must the son, oh, it's John 3. <laughs> that is, it's right, in the, it's right before John three sixteen, the famous verse. Um, as, so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? All right, so, John 3, probably 14 and 15, have to do with Moses and the serpent. And Jesus himself says that this story is given to us to show us who he is and what he has come to do, which is to be the one who takes upon the poison of sin um, in his flesh and to die for it upon the pole. That is the cross. So usually when you see an image of the serpent on the pole, uh, where was that? There it is. Um, It's not just a singular pole like that, um, but often it will have actually a crossbar like on like like a cross all right very good so lots of stuff to go there each piece of art isn't interpreted the same as the first yeah that's one of the challenges with artwork i think chris has a good point here being an artist she would know um there's authorial intent just like with writing um, but with artwork there's even more flexibility to try to bring out meaning um the ambig- ambiguity of it means it can't stand alone you can't learn alone from an image you need the, especially when it comes to Christian faith, you must have the word. There is no faith apart from speaking, apart from the words. So the image can only come alongside it. But the same way that music, right? Music could be very interpretive um, and can be very emotional, but it doesn't convey um, meaning and intent without words and very particular words. All right. So that's good. Let's move on. Um, Our epistle for tomorrow is from James chapter one. We had James last week, well, James again this week. But be doers of the word, not and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his face, natural face, in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not forgetful, a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you, thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. All right. Now, James is very controversial. Um, Luther disputed its inclusion in the canon, as has most of the church. And, um, so the only way to understand the gospel according to James, according to St. James, or excuse me, not the gospel, the epistle of James, is to understand it according to the rest of the scripture, right? Because it's a disputed book, 
We can't just read it alone and say, well, look, here's James teaching that we're saved by faith, or saved by works and not by faith, which is not what he says. He does indicate that, something similar to that in another place, right? What is he, we have to, we actually have to think in terms of categories. Here, James is not speaking about um, salvation b- before God, right? He's speaking categorically about the life of the Christian in this world, right? Um now, how does one live as a Christian in this world? He lives so by faith in the Son of God. But that faith in the Son of God then, as Paul teaches, clearly, bears fruit in love for one another. Right Now, here's what James is saying, is that um, he's not even talking about your faith. He's saying the religion, that is the way that your faith is exercised in your life, you need to be attentive to it, that it actually um, is, is lived according to the fruits that the Spirit gives and not in contradiction to the working of the Spirit, working uh, by faith, you know, through the suffering and death of Jesus. Because if you live in contradiction to what you believe, we call that hypocrisy, it can undermine what you believe. This is why you want to be attentive to this. And also can undermine your witness in the world, right? So if you fail, fail to care for the orphans and widows in their trouble, it, it's like, um, it's, a, it's a poor witness, not to the word of Jesus and what Jesus has done, um, but to your trust in that word, right? So that's what he's talking about. Um, and then, of course, this section is the the foundation for the Luther, Lutheran articulation of the three uses of God's law. <laughs> One of the three uses, right? You remember the first use is to, to restrain or to curb evil. That's the civil use. The second use is the mirror or, um, yeah, the mirror of God's law, right? This is the, not the civil use, this is the theological use. And it's confessed right here in, in St. James and elsewhere, of course, Re- meaning that God sets up his law. He shows you what you ought to do so that you learn who you aren't. And that returns you to um, confession, to repentance, for faith in Jesus again, right? And when you look at yourself in the mirror and you see that you aren't doing what God would have you to do, what, what is the purpose of that? That you confess your sinfulness that you receive forgiveness and that you live in that forgiveness, not living by your own works, all right? But works actually serve as evidence, um, not just of faith living, because um, I think that's deceiving, but of <clears throat> of the natural face, as he calls it here, of the sinful man, the flesh that so clings to us, all right? So that's one way to, um, I don't know, it's not really massaging James, but understanding it rightly. Um, Luther does this when he talks about in his greater Galatians commentary, this large Galatians commentary. Um, it's volume 26 of Luther's works, but maybe I'll grab, oh, where did it go? I'm looking for my commentary, my Galatians commentary. Oh, there it is. Wait up. Um, I'm going to read Geraldo Camacho's translation. I, this is published by 1517. It's really lovely. He does a great job with it, and he uh, allows the force of Luther's words uh, to be, to resonate. Plus, he does all sorts of extra helpful things, like note when he lectured, when this, le- what lecture is it from? Because his commentary is just a collection of lectures. All right, now I have to find the corresponding section that I wanted to read because I had it looked up in another resource here. Uh, Galatians three verse two. Okay, it's right at the beginning. All right, here we go. I found what I was looking for. It'll be the third paragraph. Yep, there it is. All right, so let me ask you this. This is Paul, Galatians 3, verse 2. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Right, so directly to this question, how do we read James? 
Paul directs these words with certain indignation and disdain toward the false apostles. If the only argument I had against you was your own experience, that would suffice. It's as if he said, come on, I mentored you. Since when did you become scholars so that, you, so that now you pretend to be my teachers and professors? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the preaching of the gospel? He persuades them so convincingly with this argument that they are at a loss to respond. Their own experience accuses them. They had received the Holy Spirit not by works of the law, but by the preaching of the gospel. Here, once again, you put, I put you on notice that Paul is talking not only about the ceremonial law, but about the entire law. He presents his argument by correctly separating the subject matter. All right, so this is a key. This is what I wanted to talk about, um, is that you have to think in terms of categories, right? What category is Paul working within? Salvation? Or is he working in terms of um, the Christian life in the world? These are different categories, and they're, they're completely, um, they cannot be confused without confusing law and gospel, right? So he, again, he says he correctly separating the subject matter. If he only spoke of ceremonial law, he would not be correct in separating the issues. It's an argument that has support from two opposing sides. For the one part to be true, the other must be false. That is, you receive the Holy Spirit either by the law or by the hearing with faith. Can't be both. It's one or the other. If it is, If it was through the law, then it was not by the preaching of faith. If it was by the preaching of faith, it could not be by the law. There is no middle ground. Everything that is not from the Holy Spirit or from the preaching of faith is from the law. Here we enter the zone of justification, or we could say the category. To be justified, there is no other way but either through the voice of the gospel or through the voice of the law. Right? Which is it? What is here generally understood by the law is the law set apart and separate from the gospel. However, it's not only the ceremonial law that exists apart from the gospel, but also the moral law or the law of the Ten Commandments. This is really confusing for especially more of the Baptist flair, American Baptists. They get this confused all the time. They think the gospel is living a good life, a life according to God's word, even according to the Ten Commandments. That is not the gospel. That's not the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. It's a different category, has a different purpose. That is why Paul here is talking about the entire law. So the ceremonial law, the moral law, even the law of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> None of that can justify, make you right with God. He anchors his argument on a clear dividing line. Quote, tell me, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the preaching of the gospel? Answer me. Because you cannot say that it was through the law. That's because as long as you were under the law doing its works, you never did receive the Holy Spirit. Indeed, every Sabbath day you heard the law of Moses, however... It had never been seen or heard that the Holy Spirit had fallen on anyone, no matter how devout a student or disciple, through the preaching of the law. Further, you've not only taught and listened to the law, but you've also attempted with all your might to fulfill its requirements through your works. If the Spirit, this is Luther mimicking Paul, right? Expanding Paul's words. I love how he does this. If the Spirit were given through the law, almost all of you would have received it, seeing that you are not only teachers and hearers, but doers of the law. See James. But even so, none of you can point me to the moment when that happened. However, as soon as you heard with faith the gospel that was given to you, immediately you received the Holy Spirit. It was just by the hearing with faith before any other work or before you demonstrated any fruit of the Spirit. In the New Testament, Luke testifies in Acts that only at the preaching of Peter and Paul, the Spirit fell upon those who heard the word, by which they also received various gifts so that they spoke in diverse languages. Acts 10 verse 44. 
You see how it works there? So um, that, that line in there, right? If the Spirit were given through the law, almost all of you would have received it, seeing that you are not only teachers and hearers, but doers of the law, just like James instructs us to be. All right, so just a little bit more here. Therefore, it is perfectly clear that they received the Holy Spirit only by the preaching of faith before they performed any good work or yielded any fruit of the gospel. On the other hand, this Holy Spirit never came through the keeping of any law or even less by the hearing of the law. Thus, the hearing of the law, as well as that zeal and affection used in doing all the things required by the law, are all vain and useless. Let's say that someone strives with the greatest possible effort to comply with the law and all its works, like James maybe encourages us to do, right? Even with the most fervent zeal for God, and with great strength should strive to be saved by the fulfilling of the law, exercising the righteousness of the law day and night. It would still, it would all still be wearying out for nothing, because all those who ignore the righteousness of God and seek to establish their own righteousness, as Paul says elsewhere, do not submit to the righteousness of God. All right. So uh, Luther does a lovely job there pointing out from Paul that um, the wall, the, not only does the law not make us righteous, even by our most fervent zeal in doing it, but we never, we and no one has ever received the gift of the Holy Spirit by the doing of the law, right? So, so James is operating in a different category. He's dealing with those who are, are hypocrites, who are denying the work of the Spirit in their lives, right? And they need to be called out, you, me, for where we fall short of the glory of God, where we refuse um, to heed the voice of, of God's word in our lives, you know, to honor our parents, um, to help preserve our neighbor's possessions and income, right? To um, protect their life and their well-being, right? Uh, to protect marriage and to uphold it, to um, uh, to not defame our neighbors and their and, and their reputation, right? I mean, where have we not fallen short of this, right? And that's what James is is driving at. Like, look at yourself in the mirror of God's law. Um, and and recognize that what you think of your you think of yourself as religious, highly religious, and yet you're actually not. Repent, believe the gospel again. That's that's what James working at. He's not saying that you can be saved by doing. He's being he's rec- he's helping you recognize that your doing is not the doing that the law requires. Even and you li- need to live as as Christians always have by faith in the Son of God, and let the works follow as the Spirit directs. All right, so that's what's going on there. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, um, trying to weave it into uh, confirmation. So good luck with that. All right, very good. Let's say our catechism for the week. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Ephesians 6, verse 9. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 6. All right, let's sing our hymn. To God the Holy Spirit, let us pray.
Just a little bit on the hymn. I think this might be helpful to you. Um, Berthold von Regensburg, a Franciscan preacher from the 13th century, c- commented on the first stanza of the hymn in a sermon derived from Psalm 124.7. Nun bitten wir is, a tr- is in truth a useful and dear hymn, and the more you sing it, the better. With wholehearted devotion, you ought to sing it and cry unto God. It was a happy find, and a wise man has written it. Um, uh, nu Bittenvier, now spelled Nun Bittenvier, is a Liza, a spiritual song in German from the late Middle Ages, whose text ends with the word Kyrie Lys, a contracted form of Kyrie Eleison. This and other Lysen were known to Martin Luther, and they form an important source for his hymns. In his Latin Mass, Order for the Mass and Communion, 1523, Luther points to the one stanza Eliza, Nun Bittenvier, as an exemplary hymn to use in the service and as a model of hymnody to inspire new poets. Luther added three stanza to the old Liza to expand the prayer set forth in it. The additional stanzas appeared in 1524 and in the German Mass of 1526. Luther suggested that the hymn be sung before the Holy Gospel. 
the hymn was also was used widely and regularly in the Lutheran service, and it is among the ten most frequently cited hymns in Lutheran church orders from 1523 to 1750. They would sing it before the hymn, or before the the um, for the gospel. All right, Uh, like a what do you call that? Like a a sequence hymn. That's what we call it. Um, Listen to the to the note about the music. So we have this with the words. I would suggest this is the Lizas are written as you know as folk hymns, right? For the people, for for the the folk. So for parents and for children, for schools, uh, for congregations. And uh, the melody bears this witness to this too, written by Johann Walter. Uh, the melody uses a pentatonic scale, a five-note set of pitches found in the folk music tradition of many cultures. Young pianists will know this as the black note scale on the keyboard. It is likely that this melody is, an o- is as old as the text in the first stanza. The single, single exception is the leading tone E in the last phrase, which creates a more modern sound. The hymn was the inspiration for a rich variety of musical settings throughout the centuries, starting with choral setting by Johann Walter. Dietrich Buxtehude set the tune as a chorale prelude for organ. Johann Sebastian Bach used the stanza beginning O Sweetest Love in his cantatas 169 for the 18th Sunday of Trinity and 197, the cantata for weddings. All right. And it's appointed for Trinity 1, so we'll sing in a few weeks. All right. Oh, uh, appropriate for the day of Pentecost, too. So there you go. As hymns should be, just like images, hymns can be serve that kind of purpose as well, to teach. All right. Uh, we do have a commemoration today, so let's look at that before we pray. Today is the uh, commemoration of Emperor Constantine, Christian ruler, and Helena, the mother of Constantine. Constantine I served as Roman emperor from AD 306 to 337. During his reign, the persecution of Christians was forbidden by the Edict of Milan in AD 313, and ultimately, the faith gained full imperial support. Constantine took an active interest in the life and teachings of the church, and in AD 325, he called the Council of Nicaea, at which Orthodox Christianity was defined and defended. His mother, Helena, AD 255 to 329, strongly influenced Constantine. Her great interest in locating the holy sites of the Christian faith led her to become one of the first Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land. Her research led to the identification of biblical locations in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and beyond, which are still maintained as places of worship today. Let us pray. O Lord of grace and mercy, teach us by your Holy Spirit to follow the example of your Son in true humility, that we may withstand the temptations of the devil and with pure hearts and minds avoid ungodly pride. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. We pray the collect for this week. O God, you make the minds of your faithful to be of one will. Grant that we may love what you have commanded and desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world our hearts may be fixed where true joys are found. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray today for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord have mercy. We pray for Tanya and Brandon who celebrate their birthday. We pray for the households of our church, especially Jack, Michael, Walt and Ruth, Ashley, Paul, and Kevin. We pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Bev, Kelsey, Amanda, Dan, Brad, Timothy, Pastor Kretschmar, Merlin, Jim, and Mike. Pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, and Paul. Pray for the mission of, uh, of the month for us, uh, Lutherans for Life. We ask the Lord to preserve and increase hope amongst us. 
and we continue to pray with the Pfeifers at the death of Dale. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. It's good to have you with us here today. Join us tomorrow for Divine Service, 9.30 a.m. Again, we'll continue to celebrate Easter. We also have confirmation of two of our young people, my daughter Leah and also Ella Rush, both being confirmed in the faith. And um, so we'll rejoice in that. There's also a congregation meeting after the Divine Service. Um, This is the annual meeting in May. (laughs) It's uh, called for in our constitution, our old constitution, uh, and I think in the new one too, all right, and the revision. So uh, make plans to stay for that if you're at all able. All right, so Lord's blessings again on your day, and we'll see you tomorrow. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church, Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.